Austin Found is sponsored by the LBJ Presidential Library on the UT campus. As you think about presidential politics these days, learn about our 36th president, Lyndon Johnson, and his wife, Lady Bird Johnson. Go to lbjlibrary.org. Literally an institution in this town of digging up old photos, old stories, collections, everything you can imagine under the sun about this great city. Greasy spoons, dives, old clubs you love this city, you're going to love it even more. Real people, real stories, real places. This is the Austin Found Podcast. Welcome back to the Austin Found Podcast. I'm J.B. Hager. I'm joined by Michael Barnes, writer at the Austin American Statesman. For the last 30 plus years, today we're going we're gonna to dig into literally six days of very, very tense moments. Very tense. Yeah, in our city in 1964. April 1964, it changed the city forever. But it was very a quiet tension in a way that means that people don't remember it because there wasn't violence, because it was very, very quietly intense. It is almost forgotten, but it definitely signaled the, the coming end of segregation. Let's first paint a picture of the national climate at that time and what had just transpired. It, that wasn't quiet. The, the, the civil rights movements that had geared up after World War II really were coming to a head. There had been some civil rights legislation passed in the 50s, but it was gutted. So we were getting to the point where President Johnson, who was from here, was considering how to get civil rights through Congress, and especially through the Senate where Southerners were supreme. What was happening were, you know, riots, marches, all kinds of very dramatic things that just took up the television screen every night. In 64, while this was going on, they were debating the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which was the big breakthrough in terms of desegregating accommodation services, all kinds of things that had been in place in the, especially in the Jim Crow South since right after the Civil War. You're going to hear a lot of names uh, on this episode in <laughs> places, too. Let's just jump into some of them. As Austin was trying to integrate, you know, a lot of that took place at the University of Texas. That's right. But not exactly willingly. No. And, in fact, it was Sweat versus Painter was a, a breakthrough decision of the Supreme Court that said that African Americans had to be let into the elite professional schools like UT Law School because you didn't have a, a separate and equal uh, law school for African Americans. They weren't encouraged to go to law school. And so that was right here in a you know, national progress made right here in Austin. The Supreme Court decided it. But, right, right. Uh, but, and in the 50s, slowly. Things were changing. Uh, schools were slowly integrating. Libraries were integrated. Uh, Muni Golf Course was integrated, one of the first in the South, maybe the first in the South. And Which is a big argument, and, or I shouldn't say argument. It is a big contention in Austin to preserve that, as that right golf today, course. And, today. Yeah, that's a significance Absolutely. of it. And also, but more slowly, swimming pools in Barton uh, Springs. There's always been in the culture of racism the sense of contamination, of pollution between 
the races. So Barton Pool slowly, uh, Barton Springs slowly integrated, mostly by swim-ins, people bringing their African-American friends. And the six days in April 1964 were a read-in where activists were reading from the Bible, reading from novels, reading from all kinds of inspirational material to completely stop any work being done by the city council. Now, back then, the city council met in the municipal building at 8th and Colorado. It's okay. a Art Deco building that just has on it now municipal buildings, some offices in there. But it's also the site, interestingly, of the, the original capital of the republic here, oh, wow. which was a just a log structure with a stockade to keep out the Indians who attacked while they were building it. So Wow. But that, that's a really historic corner there for many reasons. Yeah. Let me share some names with you, painting a picture of, of this city council mm-hmm. uh, at that time. It's some names you will probably recognize. Uh, Lester Palmer was our mayor mm-hmm. at this time. Right. Emma Long was on city council and, and very much in favor of integration efforts. She was the progressive wing of the city council since she was first elected in the 40s. And of course, you recognize the name Emma Long Park right. named after her. But then there's some other names on on city council at that time. I, I don't think using the words opposed to integration, just very crafty keeping it at bay might be a good description. But let me give these names to you. Ben White, Travis LaRue, Louis Shanks. Louis Shanks, yes. Who you know from the furniture business. Yeah. That wing of the city council did not believe in any way that government should tell people who they can uh, do business with. They could use the cover of kind of this liberty, mm-hmm. you know, which is it's still being used. You know, um, we, we look at laws that are protecting uh, LGBTQ people nowadays, and there's still a strong party of people who think, well, we should have a, a religious exception. And they believe that strongly. But what you're saying, just as in the early 60s, you should have the choice to discriminate. And then we had other leaders, future mayor Harry Aiken, who founded the, the Nighthawk chain, the beloved Nighthawk restaurant chain. And the, the last of the Nighthawks, uh, the Frisco, uh, died last year. Yeah, you know? yeah. And he was the first to integrate his restaurant. He was the first to do so very publicly. Yeah. Uh, like, what, 58? In the 50s. And he called for um, voluntary integration because he felt like he could persuade business leaders that this was the future. And, and President Johnson put him on a, a civil rights uh, hmm. commission because he was so persuasive here. But the changing the city ordinances was going to be a lot harder and this protest changed a lot of minds eventually came out of it a human rights commission it didn't have teeth for another four years also joan baez came and sang outside can you imagine that outside austin city council you might hear something like this It, it had caught the attention of the country in part because it was peaceful, in part because it was the kind of thing that Martin Luther King Jr. was 
uh, advocating, and that is absolute adamant protest, but peace. There were no race riots. There were no cleaning up neighborhoods or something, but there certainly was racism and there certainly was ethnic tension, and, but the, the, we did not have the, the kind of horrible problems that other cities ended up with. Uh, also, at the same time, the people that you saw gathering around, the, the presence of Joan Baez is important because it predicted or foreshadowed the future coalition that now dominates Austin politically because it was the anti-war activists. Mm -hmm. It was the black and Hispanic civil rights activists. It was the new green activists who were completely new. There was the women's movement. There was the gay movement. And all of a sudden, we, people looked around and went, hey, wait, we're all on the same side. Why don't we get together? And <laughs> right? The uh, big, big, big culmination came in 1970 with the first giant anti-war march that went from the, the campus to the Capitol. You saw that coalition kind of coming together by the mid-70s win the city council and have pretty much been the progressive coalition has been in charge ever since. I'm going to come back to 1970 in a second. You describe in Indelible Austin, Volume 1, when Joan Baez is out there singing outside of City Hall, a, a young Gus Garcia exactly. is there witnessing Isn't that it, wild? who later became our mayor, uh, but witnessing this moment, and that's when he decided to pivot to politics. Yeah. No, he was a, a CPA. He had been involved in politics at a low level, but he just went, you know, social justice is my, my thing, and I'm going to pursue that. It was a very personal uh, conversion right there in front of the old city hall. I can't help but when I when I read your stories in Indelible Austin, I start going down, like I'm on Wikipedia, <laughs> like going crazy, and a couple things come to mind. We'll get to the, the, the neighborhoods and some names in a second, but you mentioned 1970. That was a pivotal year. I'm going back to UT where things had started to slowly integrate a little bit. But that was when the first African-American football player went oh, on the team yeah. in 1970. And then I started thinking, okay, who's the most iconic Longhorn arguably ever is Earl Campbell. And I'm like, well, okay, when was Earl there? Right. 74. Right. Like not – I mean just the time span of that shift. Actually, Asher Price has written a fantastic book about this, and I, I can't tell you how impressed I am by the, the archival work that he did and just the, the sense of co connecting a sports figure to the larger social and political atmosphere. Uh, and I went recently, to, I was at a, a, a book signing that he did a speech at, and there were people who were working at UT at the time mm -hmm. were there, and they were talking about it. And then we were talking about how Daryl Royal really wanted to integrate the team. He had powerful enemies on uh, the uh, Board of Regents that were much more conservative. And that he was heartbroken that, that Texas, and especially himself as a coach, were somehow labeled in the national media as racist. Hmm. Because they did integrate very late. Right. But he also did everything possible to recruit Earl Campbell. He had a recruiter that his only job was to get Earl Campbell to come to UT. Wow. wow. Uh, so they really, really focused on, on getting him there on campus. Wow. 
Austin Found is brought to you by the LBJ Presidential Library. More info at lbjlibrary.org. I'm going to go back to how the city council was crafty in the way they maneuvered things around the city because there were neighborhoods that freed slaves were settling, including Clarksville, mm-hmm. Wheatsville, <laughs> Wheatville, Wheatville, which leads to Wheatsville, oh, yes. a story that jumped ahead of myself. And I'm, what are these neighborhoods? I was reading about it, and then I had to go look up where they all were. And I know you probably know off the top of your head, but it was uh, there was Masontown, right, which is where um, Plaza Saltillo is now. And it was, I only found out just recently, it's called Masontown because that's where they cut the, the, the stone, sawed the stone for the capital. Oh, wow. The, the railroad ended there, and this is where they prepped, I'm not going to say they dressed the mm-hmm. stone for the capital. Oh, wow. Another area where freed slaves were settling in Austin, Brackenridge. Right. Which is, I mean, these are no longer called that, which is why I find it interesting. Well, that's where I live, and that's in, in the Bolden neighborhood, mm-hmm. is what it's known as now. And it goes back to the 1870s, and there's still remnants of the, that African-American community there. The Freedmen's Towns, or Freedom Colonies, as they're now called, circled the city on the rural edges, ragged rural edges mm-hmm. of town. They had very few amenities. They were not hooked up to uh, the, you know, water and sewer and electricity. The big transition came in the 1920s when a formal city urban plan created a district on the east side where African Americans were supposed to go. The, exactly. The, One of those other neighborhoods was called, I'll go back to it, Wheatville. Wheatville. Named after James Wheat, a former slave. Mm-hmm. And that area was near campus. You know, the, the Freedman's Barbecue place, I, it's like it's close now, but yeah. that was in... That old the, building on 24th, that historic building on 24th yeah, Street. Yeah, that was where the newspaper was and for the Freedman's community. Hmm. So they were all around. They were all around. It was not until the 20th century that the African Americans were encouraged strongly to move to that's where east I, Austin. that's where i was saying the city council was crafty in their maneuvers in, mm. in, instead of giving infrastructure like you said utilities water and all mm. those things to these neighborhoods they said oh we've built infrastructure in east austin why don't you just go there and or at least they were, promised to yeah there, there was long long fights about oh, wow. how you know the roads weren't paved and the the water lines were not laid that was a, a, a strategic move, even less noticeable to the naked eye, was the encouragement of the Latino community to move to the east side, the lower east side. There wasn't anything in the 1928 ordinance about, I'm not, it wasn't an ordinance, I take that back, the 1928 plan. It was never enacted into law. And you were right. You are right. They were crafty about it. Mm-hmm. They simply said, we're not going to do things for you unless you all go to the east side. Another crafty thing that they did was they created a commission. It's okay, here's a resolve we've come to after all this debating. Right. In uh, we, we had created a human rights commission, but okay, here's the commission zero resources. There's no money, no teeth, no, right. no enforcement. You know. But it was, it was like just to appease them for a second, but it's not going to accomplish anything. And, and eventually it did. I mean, we have to give it that. But no, at first it was it was just face saving, and 
it was not until the federal government had passed the 1964 Civil Rights Act, the 1965 Voting Rights Act, and the 1968 Fair Housing Act. It was already done. It was already law. Okay, well, we'll give you some enforcement power now. Mm-hmm. You know? And so in 1968 or in the late 60s, the Human Rights Commission was actually a force for change. One of the things I enjoy so much in your stories about Austin, it's, it's names you know, but you don't think about as you see them in your everyday <laughs> life. And one of those is, you know, Aikens High School uh, that is named after Charles Aikens. Oh, Charles right. Aikens, yes. Charles Aikens, yes. He was, uh, he was an educator who became principal of Anderson once had moved to the Northwest Hills. He was also a, a, a political science teacher at the old Elsie Anderson. So he was able to talk in real time with his African-American students about what these changes were and how they could participate in them. And so there would be very public protest, like in front of the Paramount Theater, because the Paramount Theater was segregated. The, the larger theaters in town were segregated. There's a separate stairwell in the alley that you went up to the upper balcony if oh, you wow. were black. And I call it the segregation stairwell. <laughs> wow. But wow. It, so, yes, he was definitely there at the forefront and and, and wonderful man uh, in his later years would stand out in front of Aikens High School on the first day, long after he'd retired, and greet every single student. Said, wow. So they would know this is a real person yeah. that they could associate with the school. You know, just yesterday I was on my bike and riding by the Delco Center, mm-hmm. which I've done many, many times over the years, and did not – I th- thought it was named after a corporate <laughs> Delco sounds like a big corporation no it's Wilhelmina Delco right. who was the first African American on the school board and later a state representative longtime state representative and she's still with us and she's she's uh, uh, very sharp and, and, and a wonderful resource yeah so think about that when you see Delco Center yeah. and what that means uh, what was the vibe like in Austin in 68 when Martin Luther King was assassinated compared to the rest of the country? I think there was mourning. There were public displays of sadness, but not, there weren't riots. Quite frankly, I don't know how to explain that, but there, there hasn't been a lot of racial violence in our history and certainly racism, certainly deeply woven into our culture, still part of our culture in many ways. The kinds of racial violence that made the nightly news back in the 60s and 70s, not here. There was some violence, but not not a lot. Relatively peaceful compared to some of the other things going on. Way peaceful. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, you have to give Lester Palmer a lot of credit for keeping this high tension, high debate, intense moment mm. at bay, right? Absolutely. And to the point it drove him to exhaustion t- yeah. to where he had to be hospitalized yeah. to recover he, from it. Both he and the civil rights leader, Volmer Overton, were hospitalized with exhaustion. Of course, Palmer of Palmer Events Center, mm-hmm. since you're linking him to, to yeah. places yeah. now. He was a centrist in this fight and a peacemaker in the end. And I got to speak to him briefly before he died. The old Palmer Auditorium 
they went to him to say, can we move your name over to Vent Center so mm-hmm. that they could accept a large don- naming donation when they uh, renovated the Palmer Auditorium into the Long Center for the Performing Arts. And that's Joe and Teresa Long, who gave a big chunk of money. That's another story. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm sure we'll get to that story <laughs> at another moment. In fact, I graduated at high school in that old Palmer Event Center. Get with, out. When it was still the green building, the green dome. The, the, the green uh, turtle. Yeah, the green what turtle. people called it. That, that was the place. To kind of wrap this up, I don't know if I just wasn't paying attention or just clueless at the time, but in 2014, 50 years after the Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. Obama came into Austin to the LBJ Library and gave a great speech. Lyndon Johnson sat around a table with his closest advisors, preparing his remarks to a shattered and grieving nation. He wanted to call on senators and representatives to pass a civil rights bill, the most sweeping since Reconstruction. Most of his staff counseled him against it. They said it was hopeless, that it would anger powerful Southern Democrats and committee chairmen, that it risked derailing the rest of his domestic agenda. And one particularly bold aide said he did not believe a president should spend his time and power on lost causes, however worthy they might be. To which it is said, President Johnson replied, well, what the hell's the presidency for? Absolutely. There was a a truly historic civil rights conference to celebrate the the 50th anniversary of the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And I have to give it to the people at the LBJ Presidential Library, particularly Mark Updegrove, who was director then, and he's now head of the LBJ Foundation. They got everybody to come to that. I mean, it was amazing. Multiple presidents, all these major civil rights leaders. People are still talking about it today. It was a major, major event. And I got to spend a little bit of time in the proximity of presidents but yeah they don't let you too close no they? no but there, there, there was no q a from the right <laughs> right and michael do you know another thing that just didn't click with me until i, I dug into the, the story you had written about this was how quickly after the kennedy assassination the civil rights act happened like it was no time at all right. that that LBJ jumped into action on this, really, really stuck to his guns, mm-hmm. and wanted to continue what Kennedy intended, almost to honor him in a way. Well, he had an, a, a sense of timing of when you have the political capital to get something done that people have been trying to get done for for decades, if not centuries. So he understood that the moment was ripe. And advised heavily against it. He he had he he was advised against it, and and at the same time, in some portrayals of him, he is slowing it down. But he clearly wanted this to happen. He clearly wanted this social justice 
to take place. And and I think that the the more we look at his extraordinarily complicated and flawed character, that he got more done than almost any other president in our time, uh, certainly in my lifetime. He is remembered for many different things, but he did get civil rights done. Five hours after the House passes the measure, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is signed at the White House by President Johnson. Before an audience of legislators and civil rights leaders who had labored long and hard for passage of the bill, President Johnson calls for all Americans to back what he calls a turning point in history. We must not approach the observance and enforcement of this law in a vengeful spirit. Its purpose is not to punish. Its purpose is not to divide, but to end divisions, divisions which have lasted all too long. Its purpose is national, not regional. This Civil Rights Act is a challenge to all of us to go to work in our communities and our states, in our homes and in our hearts, to eliminate the last vestiges of injustice in our beloved country. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of Austin Found Podcast. Pass it on to your friends. Let them know to subscribe. Learn about this great city we all live in. And you can subscribe to Think Texas if you want to get more historical stories from around the state. And it's free. (laughs) You can sign up for that at the newsletters page at statesman.com. And pick up your copies... And copies for your friends. Of Multiple in- copies. <laughs> Indelible Austin, Volumes 1 through 3. That's right. You can find them at bookstores and online. And those are the collections of my best historical columns and uh, arranged thematically rather than chronologically. You'll love them. In fact, this story was shared in Volume 1, if you volume want to dig one into it. Indelible, not Inedible Austin. I know you misread it that way. But. <laughs> do a lot of people do that? Oh, yeah. Oh, no. And my mother had the best misreading. Inedible Austin? Inedible. It wouldn't make no sense. Well, <laughs> it's just the way you read those letters. People just flip it. And then my mother had the best misreading. She said, I'm reading your inaudible Austin. <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's audible. So there you go. That's right. We're making it audible. <laughs> In fact, if you want to send a note, some feedback, or questions for Michael Barnes for this podcast, send it to mbarnes at statesman.com. That's great. Or you can reach me at jhager at statesman.com. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.